This is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about connections, international business, supply chains and globalization and the effects these developments have had on our life, our work and our travel over recent times. Today we will be talking to Eddie O'Flanagan, who is an international logistics specialist and works with a range of clients such as ports, maritime and logistics providers, providing business development and asset optimization advice on projects that are both in development and scheduled for completion. Uh, Eddie was formerly managing director of Hapag Lloyd Ireland for nearly 20 years. And Hapag Lloyd, for those of you who don't know, is one of the major maritime freight carriers operating worldwide. So delighted uh, to have you with us today, Eddie. You're very welcome. Thank you, Patrick. And uh, thanks for asking me. You're very, you're very welcome. Delighted, delighted to have you here. So to, to kick off, Eddie, maybe could you give us a, a brief overview of your kind of background and career to date? And how did you come to be a, an independent uh, consultant working in this field? Absolutely. Um, I suppose, uh, like a lot of others, I fell into the business uh, rather uh, more by accident than design. Um, when I left school in the mid 70s, um, I had a vague interest in in studying to be a copywriter in advertising. And whilst I was learning a little bit more about that, uh, I took a temporary clerical position with CAE. And um, not knowing where I was going or what division of CAE I might be with. And on that first day, I was uh, picked up by a small van and taken down the docks to a place I'd never seen or been in before. Um, and the job was actually in a company called Irish Ferryways, um, which was the the company that ran the first uh, low-low container service uh, in Ireland uh, to and from Preston. Um, and from that, really, I suppose the bug uh, took me. I got interested in the business. And from there, I, I worked in a number of, of shipping agents, including uh, liner shipping, including uh, LEP International, who were agents for a shipping company called Sea Train. Um, and eventually ended up in, in Jenkinson Agencies in 1981, um, who were the agents for Havoc Lloyd. Um, I was there for a period of 16 years, uh, at which stage in, in 1997, Havoc Lloyd saw that the business had grown to a level that it was more appropriate for them as a principal to run the operation. So I and 16 other colleagues moved to the new company. And in uh, the following year, I took over as MD and I was there as MD until at the end of 2017 and it's an interesting business very interesting business Com complicated business. So, so since 2017 then you've been operating in independently so you, you work with a, a range of different clients i guess yeah i mean at the end of, of 2017 i sort of said well you know i'm not going to retire yet i mean i was a kind of an early retirement situation potentially but I sort of decided that maybe I've got something else to do and to give. So, um, yeah, I became involved in the port sector. And I, I assisted a number of BCOs in, in relation to strategic advice about freight management. And mm. um, I've assisted um, a one of the large financial houses in relation to Brexit. Um, and then more recently, I was involved with Unifeeder, which is a subsidiary of DP World, uh, who entered the market um, last year. Um, it's a very big company, but they haven't been involved in the Irish market before. So when they were coming here and here, I, I had some interaction with them. They're a very well-known company to Hapag Lloyd. So 
it's like a lot of things. It's a, it's actually, it's, it seems to be a very big industry, but when it comes down to it, especially locally, it's a small business. So, in Everybody your current, in, in your, in your current role, then as a, as an independent consultant, what are the range of services that you provide to these types of, of clients, and how would you say, or how do they say to you that they're better off after having worked with you? Well, I suppose what I sort of what I say about myself is that I provide insight and overview of the industry in general and core interdependencies, because in the port sector, you know, for for the ports themselves, they see the customers as the people who bring in the ships, but there's a lot more going on behind that, because obviously the ships themselves are carrying for perhaps the uh, deep sea shipping lines. The deep, deep sea shipping lines are involved very strongly with three PLs. And then by extension, they're involved with the BCOs, which are the beneficial cargo owners who are the actual exporters and importers. So it's trying to sort of explain how it all knits together and who actually controls the business, because it's not necessarily just the people, just the ship that comes in. There's more to it than meets, meets the eye. And you sort of have to have an understanding and a relationship with all the parties for it to work. Yeah, it's, it's it's something I've been uh, coming across recently because of a particular project that I'm working on. And I, I work a lot with the BCOs, but in other aspects of their business. But I was struck by how sometimes removed they are from the international logistics side of, of their business and how agnostic they are often in terms of where their stuff is going or how it's going. Mm-hmm. And they seem to have kind of I won't say wash their hands of it, but they've kind of outsourced that to freight forwarders and others. And I wonder whether that's going to be able to continue, given, for example, the environmental agenda and so on. So how do you, how do you, am I right in what I'm saying? And do you see, yeah, I mean, but do you see, do you see it changing? To be honest, Patrick, there has been that what we're dealing with today in terms of the dynamic today is a massive shift in what it was going back to the 1980s. And, at that stage, I'd say that 70, 70 plus percentage of your business was done directly with shippers. Um, but it's 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 gone totally and utterly the, the other way around now. Yeah, I think you're right in relation to this, so the whole climate aspect. Companies are becoming far more aware of that and they want to ensure that the carriers that are used, but they either do it via their 3PLs and they talk to the carriers directly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, that's the, you can call it the downside, I suppose, you know, if you're dealing with third parties, then for the shipping lines, they don't quite know if what they're told is always the case. And, and you know, for the actual shippers themselves, do they actually fully control the business once it leaves their door? Do they actually, you know, manage it? Do they see if something's going wrong, how quickly do they learn of it? How quickly can they react to it? You know, do they lose a level of expertise because the people who handled that kind of thing in the past aren't there anymore? Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you sometimes hear stories about, um, you know, sometimes you wonder whether they're true or not. You know, you're a managing director of a company and he's notified that his cargo was turned over on a road someplace. And he goes, Well, I don't even know why it's there. I thought it was going somewhere else by a different route. Yeah. Um, so, you know, those types of things seem to be happening. And you get, you know, the way companies are so jealous of guarding their their reputation and their um, their green credentials and so mm. on, I guess that kind of thing probably can't really continue into the future, can it? No, because I think you know you you'll be bound legally bound to ensure that your 
your cargo is looked after. And, you know, if you're becoming very focused on, you know, carbon emissions, you want to know how your cargo was handled. You don't want to know the routing it takes, you know, is it going by the, the most effective way, either from a pricing point of view, but, you know, from a protecting the environment point of view as well. Yeah, we know as well um, during uh, COVID, and maybe it actually comes from before that, but it was certainly exacerbated in COVID. I'm not getting any easier now with the with the war. But what are some of the issues in um, ocean freight that companies in Ireland have been experiencing over the last year, year and a half, um, given all of these supply chain disruptions? What's been going on in that space? You know, we hear stories of kind of rates having increased by four, five, six times. Is that is that true? And what's been going on there? Well, absolutely. I mean, it, I, I can honestly say in my 45 years in the business, I've never seen anything that's happened, like what's happened since the whole COVID situation hit. And the rates have gone crazy. Absolutely. Like they've quadrupled and more. And um, increased dramatically. I mean, it, a lot of this initially was was led in the States and on the Trans-Pacific trade where, you know, I suppose significantly increased consumer activity in the States and meant that any kind of vessel was kind of being sent in that direction and deployed in that direction. And huge pressure on the ports in the States who couldn't handle the increased level of business that was coming in. And, and it wasn't unknown for people to be paying to $20,000 a container. And those kind of rates were eventually were hitting the European side as well. And it wasn't only a question of, of the vessels or limiting limiting the space on vessels. The actual port infrastructure couldn't handle it. And warehousing facilities can't handle it because obviously with so many people being sick and so many people being ill, the, the availability of workforce to handle all of these situations, either overseas or here, and just hasn't been there. And so it's been a, a really, really mix of a mix of things that's contributed to this situation. And it's, it's not a bad time to kind of talk about the whole. I mean, I don't know whether you remember, Patrick, when there used to be shipping conferences. And that's a long, long time ago, but I, they were actually effectively banned back in 2008. And, and now that, you know, shipping lines are able to work within what's called consortia. Uh, so there's a, a number of different groups of carriers that work together and they're allowed, uh, there's block exemption, EU block exemption that allows them to kind of work in certain ways and to manage them. I suppose the best thing to do is to just refer to, to what, what they're actually allowed to do. Um, are, these are, like, are these like the alliances in the, uh, what we see with the airways? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... Just, I mean, just tell you who the who the alliances are. One of them is 2M, which is Maersk and MSC, uh, the two biggest carriers. Uh, another one is called The Alliance, which consists of Hapag Lloyd, ONE, Yang Ming, and Hyundai, and then the Ocean Alliance, which is CMA, uh, Costco, and Evergreen. So all of these people are allowed to uh, work together to operate joint service uh, services. Uh, and engage in certain types of operational cooperation leading to economies of scale and a better utilization of the space on vessels, which all seems perfectly reasonable. So they can um, 
coordinate timetables, ports of call, slot exchanges, pooling of vessels and certain infrastructure. And they can also use joint operations office. They have the ability to make capacity adjustments in response to fluctuations in supply and demand. So that means they can remove vessels, they can blank sailings, you know, at seasonal times when there's a lack of demand. Um, so these blank sailings are usually in response to seasonal slowdowns. Mm. But it does beg the question, you know, can blank sailings be used as a means to remove capacity to keep rates at a high level? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the industry, like most industries, is in a situation that, you know, if you have excess capacity, um, the rates come under pressure and they often reduce. And if you have, you know, more demand than capacity, then the, the reverse will hold true. 93.9 Dublin South FM. Faced with all of this, and now we have lockdowns in Shanghai and other parts of China. Again, I'm not quite sure what the effects of those are. But what would you say are some of the kind of measures that companies here in Ireland might adopt to to mitigate, if not eliminate, some of those challenges and the instability with regard to rates? What can they do about it? Well, I mean, what I said is that for those who have good relationships with sort of the large 3PLs or with, with large forwarders, you know, they need to actually make sure that they they stay close to those people because you know, a lot of them have contractual had contractual agreements in place that kind of avoided them getting um, stuck into having to deal in the spot market because it's it's the spot market which actually where the huge rates were and where there was contractual agreements in place, people were protected to a large degree. If you're large enough to have relationships directly with the shipping lines and you had contractual agreements again in place, you need to make sure that you continue to use that and and foster those relations. Because there was no silver bullet response to this. You couldn't say, well, we're going to, you know, charter our own vessels, which are off the chart in terms of costs, or we're going to try and do our own thing. It's too complicated and, you know, to try and do that as an independent. Although some people have done it, the Walmarts and and, uh, even Ikea have got involved in that business vessels to to kind of circumvent to get over the problems but it's it's a very very complicated issue to to resolve the value the value of good business relationships has kind of come into its own absolutely they were always valuable but you know they're they're worth their weight in, weight in gold now yeah it's, and and that i suppose i suppose factors into what you were saying before you know having an understanding of how this works having relationships with these with these important it's funny, like I suppose shipping was never was probably way down the the totem pole in terms of importance for you know board level people in the past, but for obvious reasons over the past two years, it's become front and center for many companies yeah, yeah. to that level. So they suddenly say, "What the hell is going on with our cost base here? It's going through the roof." It was surprising. It was surprising to me as well. I worked with a number of clients about this time last year, and. Um, did convince them, but it was quite difficult to convince them to give up playing the spot market and to actually get into arrangements with freight forwarders and make certain yeah. commitments. There was a certain reluctance to do that, but those that 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 did it have benefited greatly over the over the last year. Um, but it is it is yet strange to see how how much resistance there was to that. Yeah, well, it's a hard lesson to learn. This one it certainly is. Um, maybe coming up a, a level now, looking at our 
country, um, Ireland. So, you know, we're a, we're a trading Ireland nation, quite an open economy. Um, we're, I guess we've got that geographical fact of being an, an island off an island and we cer- face certain infrastructural and environmental issues. So from, say, an Ireland Inc. point of view, what do you think 10, 15 years down the line, what should Ireland look like from an international logistics point of view? I would imagine, to be honest with you, that it's going to continue in the same way in terms of being a, a, an island that's served in transshipment. The level of business that that's done, say, for certain destinations is pretty insufficient, really, to attract shipping lines to, to put a direct vessel in here. The vessels themselves are getting bigger and bigger. You know, it's not unknown now to have these very large container vessels carrying up to 25,000 TEUs each, when the market here is probably, you know, if you find it sort of 1,100, 1,200 TEUs, that's kind of the, the normal size that you'd expect to see here. So, you know, you'd want very large volume to actually justify bringing in a vessel. I mean, having said that, the um, ICL service goes into Cork every week. Um, and it's so going to, to, to the US, does it? Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's, it's, it's a kind of a niche carrier, but it, it has it gets sufficient cargo out of there. And the fact that once it leaves, it goes directly to the States. So it's, a, it's an attractive proposition. Um, but again, you know, are you going to be able to bring in a lot of services calling to Asia from Ireland? Unlikely. Um, I think we're going to be in and still in a situation that uh, you're going to need to use feeder vessels, you know, whether the port rotations will change, whether they'll be going, you know, back into Liverpool, back into Southampton. I don't know. But I I can see that this business will continue in the same way in terms of of cargo will need to be be transshipped at either UK or Northern European ports. Um, Though maybe some of the carriers will start to hub in different places. So therefore, there'll be different services operating to connect there. I wonder whether fines could ever be some sort of an international hub, maybe with uh, um, advanced freight clearance to the US, or like we have for passengers, you know, in Shannon and Dublin. Um, I've heard it being said. I, you know, I even have spoken to the, the people in, in, in Unifeeder about that. You know, did they see that this was a, because obviously with the DP world are very much involved in the port sector, but they, their view is that it's, it's unlikely. Um, and I know they're actively involved trying to develop um, and attract services into into fines. And they, there was a, a period of time where they had a, a, a low, low service operating for a period. But it was very difficult to attract uh, people in there. Um, it's, it's actually, I mean, obviously I've been involved in trying to get shipping lines to express an, in, an interest outside of the incumbents that are there already. And it's quite difficult to do there because they want to see the level of business. They want to sort of have a commitment that it's going to be X amount of business available oh, if we come in. Chicken and egg question. It, absolutely. You know, and to say, oh, you know, builders that they will come, you know, you sort of say, oh, if they actually start a service, then the business will follow. Um, easier said than done. <laughs> trust me. Yeah. I ask, uh, almost everyone comes on this show, I ask them this question about uh, globalization, not presupposing that they're experts in the field, although they might be, but not presupposing that they are, but just to get their kind of layman's perspective. So 
you know, there was a period for a long period, a couple of decades where we had, you know, growing globalization, we were benefiting from low inflation and good competition and so on through the 90s and all the way up to probably 2010. So it's uh, uh, slowed since then. So we had the recession and then we had COVID. Now we've war in Europe. We had Brexit. And it looks like things are kind of not advancing in the way they were, international goods trade and um, globalization of business. So what do, you, what, what do you think? What's your own take on it? Is this a kind of, do you think it's a blip or a, a fundamental change in form or an actual reversal? What, what would be your take on it? Yeah, I wonder will people learn from just what's gone on recently? I mean, obviously, when you see the situation in Ukraine now, nobody knows what the impact of that is going to be. To some extent, if vessels aren't calling to, to Russia anymore, is there going to be some capacity will come back into the market? Um, I mean, one thing that we haven't touched upon is that there's there's huge uh, number of orders have gone in for new vessels, which only start to arrive in 2023 and 2024. This is going to have, a, there could be the potential for a significant overcapacity. How will that be managed? We, we touched on the whole question of, you know, um, consortia should be able to kind of manage um, in response to whatever the market might be. So are they going to have to, you know, not deploy some of these vessels to keep the market at a certain level? Um, Will some of those new vessels be coming on kind of as more um, environmentally friendly? Oh, yeah. And And therefore old capacity will actually be taken out? You would like to think that there'd be a high degree of, of, of scrappage of vessels that are actually in that at that age level. I mean, that's the irony about it. In the last couple of years, vessels that actually were maybe 10, 12 years were actually changing hands for phenomenal money. And in fact, nearly anything that could float has been put on the water. So the level of scrap that's taken place in the last two years is negligible. So that will obviously ramp up again. And you would expect that the new vessels that are being deployed are going to replace old tonnage, and they will have to be obviously in very much environmentally friendly. And all right. Yeah. So leaving maybe as we get into the last few minutes, leaving the whole kind of business thing to, to one side, I might just ask you a little bit about yourself. So when you're not uh, thinking about these types of questions or working with uh, clients, that's it. What, what, that's it. What, what, what do you do in your spare time? Um, I play tennis. Um, I'm a member of Rackard Tennis Club and I'm uh, the vice president there this year. Um, so that keeps me uh, fairly busy. I try to play two or three times a week. Um, so, yeah, I have an interest in sport in general. So I kind of like to watch rugby and football. And, and yes, you were disappointed with uh, Leinster's defeat to uh, La Rochelle, yeah? Yeah. Good. yeah. Good. <laughs> yes, not, not a good weekend for sport. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, are, you, are you reading anything or listening to anything like ebooks or podcasts that you would uh, recommend to listeners? Yeah, Brian O'Donovan's, um, the uh, former RTE Washington's correspondent, his book, Four Years in the Cauldron, um, is what I'm, I'm looking at the moment. Uh, Keith Earl's Flight or F- Fight or Flight to Follow. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, he had um, quite a he had quite a torrid time as a as a young person. Didn't quite, really, yeah, so didn't quite know what was going on with him, but uh, he eventually worked it out. He sure did. <laughs> and then I have uh, Fintan O'Toole's We Don't Know Ourselves which is uh, Ireland's personal history since 1958, which is kind of sort of the time I arrived. So, yeah, it should be interesting enough. Um, 
yeah, I like I like sports I, um, autobiographies or biographies. So uh, one particular one, if you're into those kind of things, is is Andre Agassi's book, Open, which is reckoned to be one of, one of the best ones there is of any of the sports biographies. Excellent. Um, and uh, where can people find out um, more about you or find you if they want to contact you about some of these issues to see how maybe you can help them? Well, you can find me on, on LinkedIn uh, or by all means, you get me at uh, email on eddie.oflanagan at gmail.com. Excellent. So t- thanks very much, Eddie. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today and I wish you the very best for the future, both uh, personally and professionally. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thanks to our listeners also for tuning in. Any comments or questions, just drop me a line on pdaily at albalogistics.com. That's pdaily, P-D-A-L-Y at albalogistics.com. Keep well and stay safe until next time.